Welcome. We're glad you're here to join us at Waterstone. When God's Son, Jesus Christ, became one of us, His rule and reign broke into history in a new and unprecedented way through His life of love. Jesus lived to tirelessly benefit others. Just before He returned to His Father, He said, My command is this, love each other as I loved you. So the mission, the yearning of Waterstone, is to live for others so that others see Jesus. We're so glad that you're here and encourage you to attend in person if you're able. Our weekend services are on Saturday at 5.30 and Sunday at 9 and 10.30. It's become a Waterstone tradition to begin the new year with a written message about Jesus Christ, something like a letter to the church because Jesus is the reason for everything we do. Subversively, this has been a nod to the ancient church calendar when after Advent, the church globally enters the season called Epiphany, where Jesus is worshiped as the light of the nations. Originally, this week, I wrote a message on a traditional Epiphany text, Jesus being baptized in Mark 1. Over the years, I've been captured by the two scenes when God the Father directly talks His voice for the whole world uh, at Jesus' baptism and His transfiguration. At Jesus' baptism, the Father speaks to His Son in front of the whole world when He says, you are my beloved Son. At Jesus' transfiguration, that is when Jesus' pre-embodied glory is unveiled. God the Father speaks to the world in front of His Son. This is my beloved Son. You all listen to Him. What does this twice-made interruption mean? It means that the single most important thing that God wants the church to know, barring none, is what we have in Jesus Christ. It means the Father wants His church to revere His Son more than any other person or program or project or purpose. Jesus is the reason for everything we do. Amen. But then Thursday happened. Nine hundred and ninety-one structures so far destroyed. Three people unaccounted for. In a matter of hours, days before that, another horrific, evil mass shooting in Denver and Lakewood. And on top of that, skyrocketing rocketing, COVID, the boring apocalypse, numbers. How, how are you processing all this? Jen and I were in Golden last week at a secondhand store. I struck up uh, a conversation with the attendant and we got to share our experiences with COVID. 
and how it continues to impact our world. And she said, and it was so lyrical, the way she said it, it has stayed with me. She said, it just feels like there's more darkness than day right now. So I scrapped the baptism message for today. That's why there's been no slides or anything like that. I made this decision Friday. And I have my baptism message done for 2023. (laughs) I felt we needed to go to the Psalms. For 2,000 years, the Christian instinct in times of more darkness than day is to go to the Psalms and pray in the language of pain. This is for two reasons. One, the Psalms are what John Calvin called an anatomy of all parts of the soul. That means every human experience is met suitably with celebration or lament in the Psalms. Our modern life seeks to buffer the self from the sorrows of living, and they do it through technology, through media, through pleasure, through diversion, some healthy, most not. The Psalms call us into the dramatic depths of reality and help us shed tears, help us say the right things to God, even our anger, even our bewilderment. Second, the reason we go to the Psalms when there's more darkness than day (laughs) is because Jesus did. He prayed the Psalms a lot. He spoke from them more than any other part of the Hebrew Scriptures. And he died, as we've heard with the words of Psalm 22 on his lips. In ancient times, there were no chapter and verse divisions in ancient documents. So the way to refer to a book or a chapter was to quote the first line, and then everyone would know that you mean the whole psalm or the whole chapter or the whole book. When Jesus cries out his last words on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is saying, Psalm 22 explains what I am about and what this moment of my death means. So in a time today of more darkness than day, Year of our Lord 2022, Waterstone Community Church, we will begin in Psalm 22. On the surface, this psalm is a lament with the usual features of lament, a direct address, a complaint, a recruitment of God into the pain pouring out of the pain and a description of it, and then it ends with a resolution. 
What's going on here, as best we can tell, is David is expressing hurt at being abandoned in the midst of a personal attack. Yet, as you've heard, the language goes beyond David's life experience. You understand, right, that we know more about David than any other person in Scripture. His is the most revealed life. So when we read about the protagonist of this song experiencing public scorn and derision from a crowd, dying of thirst so severe that his tongue is swollen, being emaciated as is seen by being publicly shamed by forced nakedness, having his hands and feet pierced, we begin to ask, when did this happen to David? The clincher is in verse 18 where the song says, they cast lots for my garments, which is indicative of a public execution in the time when a criminal was executed, the executioners got to keep the clothes. When was David on trial and publicly executed? The fact is there's no record of any of this happening to David. So what's going on? The answer comes from the first sermon preached in the global church on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and filled the church with his presence. Peter got up and preached a sermon, the first sermon in church. And part of the sermon, we read this, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day, but he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, David spoke of the death and resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. What Peter, uh, Peter asserts is that David is in his personal life suffering some kind of personal conflict, but as he did, the Spirit came upon him with a prophetic reach to see a thousand years into the future the greater David who would by an immense suffering gain an immense redemption to establish his kingdom. There's no way to make sense of Psalm 22 unless it's pointing to Jesus. So we ask the question, what does God want us to see from this song about his son? What does he want us to revere about Jesus? Two things. God wants us to revere the immensity of Jesus' sufferings. You would read in the gospel accounts of Matthew and Mark the moments of Jesus' death. You would read that what happened was a sudden darkness came over the earth from noon to three on the day that Jesus died. And then you would note from these accounts that the last thing Jesus says is this line from Psalm 22. But it's interesting, both Matthew and Mark write that he cried out this song in a loud voice. He screamed it. He screamed it. 
He screamed it in the trade language of the day so that more than just the Hebrew people in the crowd would hear. He screamed it in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, Lema, Sabachthani, so that everyone would understand. What's interesting is that the screaming is a departure from the long poise that Jesus has displayed up to this point. He's in unbearable pain, scourging, mocking, crown of thorns, nails through hands and feet. And yet through this time, he's been silent, as Isaiah said, like a lamb silent before the shearers. But then in the dark and near the end, he screams. Something new is happening here. This is pain that goes beyond the physical. This is pain of a relational loss. Jesus does not cry, my hands, my hands, my head, my head. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They have been wrapped in each other's souls for all eternity, and what Jesus now is experiencing is separation from his Father. The great Princeton divine, B.B. Warfield, wrote, in the presence of this mental anguish, the physical tortures of the crucifixion recede into the background And we may well believe that our Lord, though he died on the cross, yet did not die of the cross, but as we commonly say, died of a broken heart. The pain of that separation from his father is beyond our comprehension. As Dane Ortland puts it in Gentle and Lowly, a three-year-old cannot comprehend the pain a spouse feels when cheated on. How much less can we comprehend what it meant for God to funnel the cumulative judgment for all the sinfulness of his people down onto his own son? What happened at this moment on the cross? Jesus was forsaken. Why? Because Isaiah saw 700 years into the future when he wrote, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is experiencing our judgment day. The sin bearer carries now the concentrated load of our sins. The cross allows God to execute justice on sin and death and evil so that he can still be righteous when he forgives our sins. But forgiveness And you know this from your personal relationships. Forgiveness always requires someone 
to absorb the cost of the hurt. And Jesus takes it all. My friends, no one has ever suffered like Jesus suffered. But why? The immense suffering that we revere leads to an immense redemption that we revere. The writer of the Hebrews quotes Psalm 22 in chapter 2 of Hebrews when he says that Jesus tasted death for everyone so that now he is not ashamed to call us sister and brother. Jesus was separated from his first family at the moment of death so that we can become eternal family. It means that my God, my God, why have you forsaken me is not a rhetorical question. Jesus was forsaken by God so that you and I would never have to be forsaken by God. <laughs> Listen, you came this morning. You're watching online so that you can hear this. Because of Jesus, it does not matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter what your parents said about you. It doesn't matter what your teacher says about you. It doesn't matter what anyone will say about you. Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother and sister. God's love for his family is not based on our response to him or our performance for him, or our circumstances from him. The source of his love is within himself. He had perfect community for all of eternity. He was perfectly happy. The only reason he made us is not to get joy from us, but to give joy to us. He doesn't need us, but he chooses us. And he chooses to love. So, <laughs> sit in this, right? Nothing you can do can make God love you more than he already does. And nothing God can do can demonstrate his love for you more than the cross. He's already told you how much he loves you. And that love secures your future and it strengthens your presence with his promises. God will love you to the end. The end of your life, the end of your sins, the end of your tears, the end of your fears, the end of your temptations, the end of the night. God loves you. So what does Psalm 22 mean 
for us in our darkness. And now we're turning to go and look and find our seat at the table with Jesus for communion. So for those of you at home, you have uh, about three minutes to go get your communion elements and uh, we're gonna share in the Lord's Supper. Feel free if you didn't get any here in the room to go out and find your elements. What does Psalm 22 mean for us in our darkness? At least two things. First, it means that when we suffer, Jesus attends. He is tending to our suffering. Do you know that the thing you need most in suffering is not answers. We can make it without answers. In fact, we have to make it without answers. But even if we have answers to why we're suffering, loss still hurts. What we need most in suffering is presence of another who empathizes fully with us. And Christianity, hear this, is the only religion where God is with us in suffering because he has suffered. On his 39th birthday, poet Christian Wyman was diagnosed with an incurable form of blood cancer. And he wrote frankly about the effects of the illness and even more the treatments. He writes, I have had bones die and bowels fail, joints lock in my face and arms and legs so that I could not eat, could not walk. I have passed through pain that I could never have imagined, pain that seemed to incinerate all my thoughts of God and to leave me sitting there in the ashes alone. Goes on to write that when the diagnosis came, he was at the top of his career. He was a rising literary star, a professorship at Yale, a prestigious uh, poetry publication he edit, edited. He writes that he confessed Christian faith as a child, but that he evaporated in the blast of modernism and secularism at the public university. But the diagnosis started a journey that ultimately led him back to God. But he notes, it was not a particular doctrine about God. What drew him was the suffering Messiah. He writes, I am a Christian because of that moment on the cross when Jesus, drinking the very dregs of human bitterness, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The point is that God is with us, not beyond us in suffering. I am a Christian because I understand that moment of Christ's passion has deep meaning in my own life. I am not suggesting that ministering angels are gonna come down and comfort you as you die. I am suggesting that Christ's own suffering shatters the iron walls around individual human suffering. 
So the first thing that Psalm 22 means is that when we suffer, Jesus is with us and he knows what it is to suffer. The second thing Psalm 22 means is that our suffering has an end. And by end, I mean stop. Jesus died in the dark in the middle of the day so that there would be no more darkness, no more mourning or crying or sickness or pain or death. We, <laughs> we are the only species, as far as we know, who spends its whole life knowing that we're going to die. A clam dredged from the ocean off of Iceland in 2006 carried growth lines on its shell indicating that it had been around since 1499. That was enough time for 185,055 generations of mayfly, which live as little as a day. Neither clam nor fly gave a thought to mortal math. But what will you do? Seems to me you have at least two choices. You can become Amish and gain five years. That's supposed to be funny. <laughs> or you can be daring enough to trust a story that has been around since the creation of human existence where a man by his own power walks out of his own grave and invites us to meet him on the other side of death. And by end, I mean purpose. Michael Green, a British pastor, writes, look what Jesus' suffering produced. Look what benefits flowed from the awesome suffering endured by joy. It's the same with Jesus and his followers, mystery though it is. Much flows from it when it is endured by hope. Character is formed by it. Art and creativity are stimulated by it. Compassion and care are evoked by it. And in the end, the greatest mystery of all, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for a, an eternal weight of glory that is beyond comprehension. When we see the epiphany of Jesus in Psalm 22, his dynamic of suffering and resurrection anchors our lives. And whatever you lose, it will show up again. It is redeemed. God is at work. Hence, Waterstone, year of our Lord, 2022. Keep loving. Keep learning, keep leaning, obey, pray the Psalms one a day, be in community and worship. Become like Jesus and live for others because God will be back. The cross says he's never left. <laughs>